Well, hey, what's happening? Um, slightly late on the Meredith Monday today, but uh, it's going to be a cool one. Slightly different. Stay with me. Well, what I have in mind, um, I missed I missed Chris yesterday. We just both uh, had a bit of trouble uh, and were unable to connect in our usual time slot. Uh, it's kind of a difficult one. It's the only one that works for us, so we just have to be content with that. Um, and then uh, Monday rolled around, and um, yeah, it was a bit difficult to get there. My computer crashed. Long story. Let's not go there. Um, all right, so what I wanted to do, just I got a head full of Augustine, and I thought, just before we move on from that, I uh, got some super interesting little bits that work well on a Meredith Monday in that, you know, we often talk about Klein's exegesis and the framework position and uh, what else, like, uh, I don't know, uh, even just the covenant of works and that basic uh, idea of megapolis and metapolis, um, if you've looked at that in Klein and, um, and just really fundamental stuff to the Kleinian system. Um, you know, we often talk about that as being somewhat related to the Augustinian tradition, even the two kingdoms thing uh, relates at that level and um, not going into necessarily the exact differences and similarities there. They're not exactly the same and we wouldn't want to pretend that that is the case. Uh, we might we might talk about that later as to exactly the differences between Augustine city of God idea and uh, what, what we're on about with two kingdoms. But let's just leave that aside for now. I mean, it's, it's undeniable in my view, at least, that that um, everything that is being said in a two-kingdom idea, or, or even just leaving aside two kingdoms, and, and more just even some really niche little bits of Kleinian theology leading up to a, a two-kingdom thought, um, is, is, is often just being, you know, it, it's, 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 it's coming out of Augustine, but it's echoing massive portions of what he already said. So um, I find that very helpful. Because obviously one of the big things with Klein is you get so stoked about it and you're like, okay, well, you know, um, then you then you before you know it, you're up against the the whole reformed world, it seems sometimes, in that not everyone you you realize pretty soon is a fan of Klein because they want to adopt a either a more mono covenant uh, covenantal position or they don't like republication or they don't like the framework theory or there's all sorts of things that uh, people don't always Sabbath view as it relates to all of those things uh, together. But, um, you know, and then typically what you'd say is, you know, all right, well, the, the, this is definitely represented all the way through in church history. Augustine's name definitely comes up. Um, and along with some, you know, various other thinkers all the way through, uh, Chris and I have often mentioned a bit. But, um, you know, it's just helpful to go back and actually see that in the text uh, as you read it in, I don't know, wh- wh- whatever you're reading, you know, whatever particular uh, historical figure you're looking at. So just because uh, I'm not necessarily on a client hunt in Augustine, but just came across these things that are just so striking and, and they just feel so contemporary. Um, and um, I think it's because I largely gleaned most of this from Klein that I find it very interesting to to see it in uh, Augustine, like directly, you know. In fact, there are many things in Augustine that I realize now everyone is just kind of, um, I suppose, copying to some degree, even if they thought of, of it originally. It was thought of before in Augustine at some level. Um, but anyway, so chapter 7 in book 11 
is uh, is an interesting. He's dealing with uh, creation, and so in terms of the framework position and all of that, uh, Augustine's got this crazy. He he wants to get out of the literal thing, and so he finds a definite um, similarity to Klein's way of thinking, and then doesn't go in a framework view. But sees something very similar in that he's like, listen, the thing is there for our understanding. Who who on earth really knows what happened in the historical actuality of those events? Uh, we're not meant to have this full scale knowledge delivered to us. We're meant to understand, you know, that this this is revealed in a condescending manner. So you know, he's not making a full orbed. Um, uh, you know, he's actually arguing that this this whole thing happened in one moment. Um, and, and it's just broken down in six days to explain the, the, the idea to us. Whereas with Klein, he's not saying that. Um, but it's similar in that we're realizing there's something more than just simply uh, trying to understand a literal, almost scientific verbatim event being described in, in, uh, in the first chapter of Genesis. There's something going on there. And it's something that's revealed for our, for our understanding and for our purposes. So just to read a little bit of Augustine to you, um, I'll take a little bit from that and then we'll go into um, a later book where he says something really interesting. Um, but chapter 7, uh, this is Of the Nature of the First Days, which he, uh, he entitles, which are said to have had morning and evening before there was a sun. Um, he says, We see indeed that our ordinary days have no evening but by the setting, and no morning but by the rising of the sun. But the first three days of all were passed without sun, since it is reported to have been made on the fourth day. And first of all, indeed, light was made by the word of God, and God, we read, separated it from the darkness and called the light day and the darkness night. But what kind of light that was and by what periodic movement it made evening and morning is beyond the reach of our senses. Neither can we understand how it was and yet must unhesitatingly believe it. So, I, you know, that's really great. If you, um, you consider what he's saying there, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a historical reality. We must unhesitatingly believe what's being said. It's the best way to communicate that thing. But there's just something crazy going on, and we have to be honest about that as well. He goes on, For either it was some material light, whether proceeding from the upper parts of the world, far removed from our sight, or from the spot where the sun was afterward kindled, or under the name of light, the holy city was signified, composed of holy angels and blessed spirits, the city of which the apostle says, Jerusalem, which is above, is our eternal mother in heaven. That's an interesting one. Uh, and in another, another place, for ye are all the children of the light and the children of the day. We are not of the light nor of the darkness. Um, so, you know, he's just going, well, in some sense, we might even have a, a glimmer of, of that um, reality of Sabbath rest even before it's described on the seventh day, which is crazy. Uh, but then he says, Yet in some respects we may appropriately speak of a morning and evening of this day also. For the knowledge of the creature is, in comparison of the knowledge of the Creator, but a twilight. And so it dawns and breaks into morning when the creature is drawn to the praise and love of the Creator, and night never falls when the Creator is not forsaken through the love of the creature. In fine scripture, when it would recount those days in order, never mentions the word night. It never says night was, but the evening and the morning were the first day, so of the second and the rest. And indeed, the knowledge of created things contemplated by themselves is, so to speak, more colorless than when they are seen in the wisdom of God, as in the art by which they were made. Therefore, evening is a more suitable figure than night, 
And yet, as I said, mourning returns when the creature returns to the praise and love of the Creator. So what uh, all I'm wanting to pick out there is that he's drawing on some sort of figurative poetic elements in the text, which, uh, again, I would certainly agree with. And uh, even though we might not agree on exactly what the details are, he's saying there's something beyond what is natural that is um, you know, evident by the fact that you've got three days without any normal light. So you've just got to think beyond the norm there and um, and understand there's something of an allegory going on. Um, and then chapter 8, uh, where he says, we, so still in book uh, 11, when it is said that God rested on the seventh day from all his works and hallowed it, we're not to conceive of this in a childish fashion as if this was a toil to God. And I'm just kind of paraphrasing a little bit there because he goes on his super Latinized trip. Um, but God's rest signifies the rest of those who rest in God, as the joy of a house means the joy of those in the house who rejoice, though not the house, but something else causes the joy. He gets to stay with me on this one. Uh, how much more intelligible is such phraseology than if the house itself by its own beauty makes the inhabitants joyful? For in this case, we not only call it joyful by that figure of speech in which the thing containing is used for the thing contained, uh, and then he gives a whole lot of examples. Uh, he's just basically saying, listen, we've got a figure of speech going on, but also by that figure in which the cause is spoken of uh, as if it were the effect, as when a letter is said to be joyful, right? So like we talk about a joyful letter because, not because the letter is joyful, but because it makes its readers so. The readers are joyful as they read, and I'm, again, I'm kind of paraphrasing there. Most appropriately, therefore, the sacred narrative states that God rested, meaning thereby that those rest who are in him and whom he makes to rest. And this the prophetic narrative promises also to the men to whom it speaks and for whom it was written, that they themselves, after the after those good works, which God does in and by them, if they have managed by faith to get near to God in this life, shall enjoy him, uh, joy in him eternal rest. This was prefigured to the ancient people of God by the rest enjoined in their Sabbath law, of which in its own place I shall speak more at large. And he does. He goes on to speak about that big time. Now, what's inter- that's a nice little abbreviation, though, because... Um, you know, you see what he's doing there. He's going, listen, the rest is what Hebrews 4 talks about. It's it's heaven. It's the it's the city. <laughs> it's the whole, it's the thing I'm, I'm gearing up to, to tell you about in this book. The final uh, city of Jerusalem, which is, you know, exactly right. And that's exactly what we want to consider is being mentioned in the first chapter of the Bible. This is God. This is where he lives. This is how you get to him. Now, of course, uh, he's jumped over there and thinking about this in terms of a covenant of grace arrangement in that, um, and, and even though he might not use that term technically, I mean, it's assumed that those who would ever enter into that kind of rest would do so through the Redeemer. Uh, so he's jumped over that initial pre-sin phase. And so that leaves us, I mean, firstly, that's pretty amazing in terms of just, you know, showing the beginnings of a tradition that uh, see um, things in a profoundly Kleinian way. But um, then the big question becomes, all right, well, you know, does, what about a covenant of works then? Um, you know, if you're seeing a covenant of grace and this this idea of the seventh, uh, seventh day, not only uh, foreshadowed in Israel, he mentions that, but ultimately talking about the rest we have in him. Um, what about the time with Adam before? Uh, before the sin. And, uh, and for that, I'm just going to jump over to, uh, what is this, book 13 and chapter 23, if you did want to check it out, um, under the title, Adam and of those 
who are made alive in Christ, uh, which, you know, even by their title, you can tell he might he might talk a little bit more about this. Now, there's a lot to say in this chapter, but I just want to, I've got this little section highlighted to read to you. And what he's doing is basically um, comparing, you know, Adam as the first federal representation of humanity and um, and then, you know, comparing to, to Christ. Uh, who are, you know? So those who died in Adam and those who were made alive in Christ. What's crazy about all of that is that's covenant theology. It's federal, federal theology. Whether it's it's just very well represented in Augustine all the way through, and that's just because it's out of Paul. At the end of the day, he knew his Bible. Bottom line, um, but he says the first man of the earth um, was made a living soul, uh, not a quickening spirit, which rank was deserved for him as the reward of obedience. Um, that's the key right there. The first man of the earth was made a living soul, not a quickening spirit. Now he's comparing 1 Corinthians there and thinking about Paul and Romans 5. Um, and, and he's saying the rank of quickening spirit, which is, of course, how Paul talks of Christ, um, and, and not as a, as a spirit, but as a spiritual body the, the, who gives, uh, uh, and that's not against anything um, material but the idea is uh, of the next age right uh, so so Christ is the one who has entered into that that spiritual um, ultimate reality um, that consummate reality the, the the resurrection body so we're not when we're saying spirit we're not saying without a body we're just thinking resurrection body but the bottom line is that was a rank reserved for him Augustine says uh, as in for Adam now as a reward of obedience and therefore for Christ, uh, it, it, it was his reward. And so what you have there is just this amazing, I mean, you, don't, you just don't need any more than that in terms of getting to the covenant of, of works idea. And not only that, but, but the idea that, that eschatology was coming and that this is not all that there was. Um, and then even further to that, uh, he goes on and says, uh, and, and therefore his body, which required meat and drink to satisfy hunger and thirst, again talking about Adam, <clears throat> and which had no absolute and indestructible immortality, but by means of the tree of life warded off the necessity of dying, and was thus maintained in the flower of youth, this body, I say, was doubtless not spiritual, but animal. See that? Now, just stopping there for a second, what he's doing there is he's saying, listen, just be sure when you consider Adam in his original state, not to consider him as we will ultimately be in Christ, there was a difference. We're not trying to regain that original status of creation. We're not trying to go back to the garden. You know, it's coming through over and over in what he's saying. Uh, rather, what was promised to Adam is what we are, have now been assured that we've gained. And, uh, and, and that's what Christ has already entered into. Um, and so he talks about it as a spiritual body and an animal body. And of course, all he means there is, you know, the earthly body of Adam and, um, and uh, or body of the dust, um, so to speak, versus a body from heaven. And again, we're not we're not saying one is without matter and the other one is with matter or anything like that. We're not going gnostic. We're just saying the one is of the next age and the one is of this age. But um, Adam did not have that body already. Is the point? And so um, he kept the the flower of his youth, as um, as Augustine points out. But the so through. The, the, the tree that warded off death as he would um, uh, have access to it. Um, and, and yet, um, 
It would not have died, he says, but that it provoked God's threatened vengeance by offending. So only, only through the curse. And though sustenance was not denied him even outside paradise, yet being forbidden the tree of life, he was delivered over to the wasting of time. Ecclesiastes right there. Amazing. Uh, at least in respect of that life which he had not, had he not sinned, he might have retained perpetually in paradise. Okay, now check this out. Are you thinking, wait a minute, is he just saying... Is he just saying that, you know, if Adam hadn't sinned, he would have just been in paradise forever? That's a lot of Reformed people that think that. But he says, no, though only in an animal body, right? So in other words, only in that Adamic body, till such time as it became spiritual in acknowledgement of his obedience. Boom. That's the me- that's uh, megapolis turning into metropolis. Inclining your language, that's, that's the... The consummation, that's the kingdom being given upon um, determination that Adam had fulfilled his his uh, covenantal role. You know, it's just, um, it's Klein through and through. So it's just good to know. You know, Klein's getting this from the Bible. So is Augustine. I don't, Klein didn't strike me as the kind of guy who would just rummage through Augustine a whole lot. But yeah, they are saying <clears throat> the same things. And, um, you know, it's just, it's really encouraging to see that. So look, there's more we can say, of course. Uh, it's a big book and uh, I might just say a bit more about it in the future. I've still got a few more uh, books to go um, before getting through the whole thing. But uh, that's something from Aurelius Augustine for you today on Meredith Monday. Isn't that special? I think it is. Let's, let's, uh, let's be encouraged by that, Kleinians. Um, have a good week. I'll talk to you tomorrow.